chapter 20, in which I witness the end of an age and meet old acquaintances. Some speculation concerning the aspirations of mankind. I sat amongst the cold ruins of Labus's crucible and kept vigil at her feet, occasionally staring up at the fresh constellations and patterns of light which crossed from star to star. All was frozen, lines and spheres. I wondered if it would stay fixed thus forever. When might they begin to move again? I asked Labusa, but she was in no condition to reply. I had waited there patiently in the hope that magically she would heal. I did not know, even if she did heal, if the eagle would not return to rip out her heart again. I remembered reading in some old grammar about the dangers of the rituals of repetition. I tried to recall how Prometheus had escaped his similar fate. The deeper city was now almost fully down, although a few houses remained upright, defying all the laws of nature. Before they too went shuddering into dust with a weary roar. The lion was lost to us. I suspect he vanished when her spirit left her body. Yet the longer I waited at her feet, the more I believed I could hear, from somewhere beneath the debris, the snorting and panting of a beast. I was certain I had detected at least once the angry pounding of some enormous club. I still did not know the exact nature of Monsorbier's secret discovery in the depths. Could it have been Labusa's Minoan ancestor and mine? Labusa, your blood is my blood. It remains vibrant, wonderful blood. I need nothing else. I am yours, Labusa, still, and you belong forever to me. It grew increasingly cold in those ruins. The young stars lacked warmth. I breathed too much soot. Could the pair of us have succeeded, at least partially, in changing history's course? Had we perhaps defined just one of the terms by which humankind would live and struggle to seek its cure from pain? Or had we opened the gates of the world to chaos? Her ragged corpse was limp upon its cross. She had been an extraordinary woman who had believed she could remake the world in a saner mould. She was no martyr. She died because she longed for power. But she wanted power because she recognised that there was inequality in the world. And it perhaps, it's perhaps, uh, and that perhaps is ever a contradiction. As I considered this, a thin pallor began to spread across the deeper city's broken horizon. A thin strip of light established itself. This gave me to hope that Labusa and I might be astonished by some fresh Muranberg miracle. If we could only have retreated in time to happier days and retained our experience of the future. We had harmed no one, changed nothing save ourselves. The miracle, however, was not for us. Old Muranberg's unique night was coming to an end forever, with the abolition of the autumn stars. Her particular wonder was disappearing from the city. No longer timeless, she would come to know the rule of stricter princes than the Sebastocrator, for it seems that Kronos must inevitably gather power. I witnessed Muranberg's first ordinary dawn. It revealed strange shadows dissipating amongst the broken stones of Amalorm. 
Little beasts and larger bugs scampered through the fading gloom and wriggled into cracks between the toppled slabs, many doubtless beginning an exodus for lost starlight. The sun shimmered with dissipated radiance which fell upon Labus's body. I hoped for a moment it would bring her to life. I watched intensely to see if those new rays would affect her. I hoped to see her lift her head and smile, to tell me simply that she had played a game, that she had sought only to demonstrate a lesson. But there was a raw red wound in her breast where her heart used to be, and from it dropped the occasional bead of blood which fell upon her shattered metal womb. The only movement was when the breeze made strips of flesh or hair flutter. The sun was up in earnest now. For a while I was blinded by golden light. I could not leave her. I had nowhere to go. I loved her. The light remained bright and the surrounding ruins became misty. Sometime later I had the impression of a tall figure wading through the ashes, stopping now and again to pick among the rubble. Eventually the figure paused nearby and turned to me. Still dazzled, I could not determine any details of its features. Could not see if it were a man or a woman. But then I recognised its outline. Can you save her? I asked. Can you restore her to me, sir? Or tell me how I may command the Grail to do so. I realised to my surprise that I had been weeping all the time. The figure shook his head and gestured sadly. I am no longer permitted such power, Von Beck. Not here on earth, at any rate. And neither you nor I nor any living things, natural or supernatural, can command the Grail. The Grail, as I told you once before, is itself. It brings all to balance. But it will not be manipulated. It is harmony personified. Is that why you gave me that terrible sword? My gift, as you recall, was unconditional. You were told as such. It was yours to use as you saw fit. I had no special intent for it. You are still the old Lucifer, then. Still devious, still mystifying, still obfuscating. Oh, you do me wrong, sir, if you think so. Ah, oh, Lucifer. What is it you want from us? Pity? Forgiveness? What? Victorious triumph, said Hal's monarch, frankly. That alone shall restore all to grace. And what shall restore Labusa to me? She is within you. I do not appreciate your comedy, sir. It is for you to determine, sir. Was he hinting at a bargain? I do not serve you, Lucifer. I was shivering in the cool air, but noted that my body was coming to life again as my anger grew. I would have served her, sir. I wished to serve her. It was through no lack of desire that I failed. Not a moral scruple? For her sake... I did not wish to see her destroying what she valued so highly. I lacked courage. I feared the beast. Together we would have beaten you, sir. Where did the eagle carry her heart? 
the figure came into sharper focus for a second. The face was gloriously, androgynously beautiful, and very gentle in its concern. Well, said Lucifer, at least you serve the truth, still, and I can thank you for that. And you judge, still. Sir, I do not judge, I cannot judge. Sir, you judge others and you judge yourself. He smiled, and as for your question, his expression changed. I can only answer that there are certain realities less pleasant than hell. Lucifer had positioned himself where the crucible had burned that night. He stooped very suddenly and bent down. He lifted the battered antique helm into the air. I had no liking for the grail, for it had destroyed the woman I loved. I considered its guardianship not as a family duty, but as my family's curse. Lucifer held it up to the sky almost in appreciation, and for a moment a million coloured rays sprang from it, fanning upwards and seeking the bodies of those new constellations. This was in its place, he asked, during the concordance? Aye. Then there may be more than a little hope for us, Von Beck, after all. I wanted no further intercourse with Lucifer, nor any further mysteries. I'll take the thing back to hell with you, sir. That is where it deserves to dwell. I shall try to hold on to it, said Lucifer. Again the grail caught the sun and blinded me. When I next could use my eyes, both it and Lucifer had vanished. I spent that morning pulling her corpse from the cross and lighting a pyre on which I placed all surviving relics of her ruined dream, and then gently I laid her on top of that ramshackle heap. A few coals remained to set the thing afire. It burned well enough. Again I had half a hope it would revive her, that primitive imitation of the night's rituals. But the corpse burst and roast and stank like Christmas pork and became one with the rest of the ashes. Yet Lucifer had been right. I had her within me. I walked away from that cooling pyre, with some intention, I recall, of taking my own life, when I heard overhead a familiar collection of coughs and bangs and stutterings. It was the sound of the gunpowder engine. Flying very low through the noon mist, its peculiar machinery giving off brown smoke came St. Audrin's battered Danos. The green and gold griffin had a faintly ridiculous air to it, hanging so soberly, so dramatically, beneath the bulbous canopy of his weather-stained scarlet and white balloon. I found that I was weeping again and waving. I had never guessed how much I should welcome that contraption and her master or how sweet his friendship should prove to be. My dandy Scotsman was peering over the side of the basket, a telescope in one long and elegant hand, his finger and thumb upon the valve cord. Halloo the ground! Come aboard, sir, we leave the middle march this day. And then St. Audrin narrowed his eyes and looked aghast, as if he had just noticed something freshly peculiar about my person and then he offered me a devilish broad grin. By God, sir, you're stark naked. I looked down at my own resurrected body. By God, sir, said I, so I am.
epilogue. That same day we sailed from the middle march with the intention of never visiting those regions again. Prince Mereshlav's maps and instructions were invaluable, as was his gunpowder engine. We were able to steer a discreet course into our own world. At my insistence, we returned to Mirrenberg, and there I planned to give up all the money we had raised on our airship swindle. We were received as heroes by the populace and invited to attend the prince himself. He had not, we discovered, put a fennig into the, into the scheme, but in her will the Landgräfin had left large sums to us both, the reason it was revealed, for her nephew's fury, while much of the rest of the gold had come from the estate of the Duchess of Crete and was judged to be rightfully ours. Suddenly, we were legitimately rich. If I say that St. Odrin was almost suspicious of his own luck, while I had mixed feelings in the matter, the reader will understand. I would have given up everything to have had Labossa restored to me. Only my old friend and comrade Sergeant Schuster, who had appeared, had entertained more than an inkling of our original plan, was unambiguous in his joy at our good fortune. He insisted upon giving us a celebratory dinner in the main hall of the martyred priest. The atmosphere of goodwill and jolly fellowship which infected the occasion did something to relieve my grief and remind me of the world's ordinary pleasures. Shortly thereafter, I began the journey back to Beck, leaving St. Odrin in Mirrenberg, where he and several local peoples of a scientific persuasion intended to discover the secrets of Mereshlav's gunpowder engine and build the aerial boat which until then had only existed in his imagination. In Beck, I was soon enjoying the pleasant comforts and familiar love of my mother and father. Both were delighted to welcome me, though they remarked me much changed, and chiefly for the good they thought, and my father, who was by that time ailing, began to speak of giving me gradually increasing responsibility in the running of the estate I would inherit, since my older brother was not expected to live much longer. There was no denying the appeal of that peaceful and ordered life, that rural harmony, that habit of rigorous reasoning and moral investigation, which is our family tradition. The library at von Beck is known to be the finest in Germany, and I soon discovered, once I had learned what to search for, that it gave me a wealth of reading upon those subjects dominating my thought. Yet in spite of the tranquillity, the profusion of learned works, the benign affection of my dear family, and the leisure in which to trace almost the whole romantic history of the Cartagenas, the Mendozas, the Chilperics, and that specific line which brought the three together, I slowly concluded that I did not have the appropriate character, nor indeed vocation, to become Beck's next lord. In truth, I was fitted to be nobody's lord, and my mother's hopeful references to matrimony, though well-meant, became offensive to my ears. Labossa remained my betrothed in life or death, and in case the reader should conclude, I fostered a morbid affectation within my breast, such as the heroines of the modern romances exhibit in the new breed of English novel and its progeny, I should make it plain I neither despaired nor was unusually subject to fits of melancholy, wild frenzy, or mysterious terrors. Labossa lived within me as she lives now, and I was easy in that knowledge, unlike the heroines of, say, the castle of Wolfenbach, or the orphan of the Rhine. I, as Labossa, had scant capacity for languid terror, and continued to be of an active disposition. What I most desired was the easy, unself-conscious, trusting comradeship of woman, 
whose sensibilities often nowadays seem to be much closer to my own. Whatever worked that alchemy, whether it be the mixed tincture and blood of that terrible ritual, or simply my ordinary experiences as Labusa's lover, there was no question that it had transformed me irredeemably. My interests remained the same. I had never had much taste for heroical warfare, hunting or the like, but they gradually broadened to include those which society tells us belong to the woman's sphere, but which are not simply occupations. They suggest a certain way of observing the world. My energies were devoted increasingly to gardening, it is true, and to music. Perhaps this change in me is best explained by my mother's references to my affectionate and devoted nature, my honest willingness, considered unusual in men, to attend my poor brother when, in the last stages of his consumption, he was permanently bedridden. Yet I continued to love late nights, talking of the most outrageous and unlikely subjects at extravagant length with my father's friends or my youngest brother, soon summoned home in expectation of Ulrich's demise. Also, the frequent visits of Baron Kassevin, whose wife I found both charming and intelligent, though much in awe of her raconteur husband, was always anticipated with considerable pleasure. What greatly frustrated me was the segregation of the sexes, so that I was unable, much of the time, to choose the company I momentarily desired, and the deep-set assumptions expressed, as frequently by women as by men, on the matter of what did and what did not constitute either man's or woman's estate. Increasingly after my brother's death, I began to make trips abroad to ease my boredom and restore my wits. The frequency of these trips at length began to distress my parents, and I knew that I must resolve the matter sooner than I had planned. I arranged an interview in my father's study. This lay upon the ground floor in the east wing of the house. I looked out upon the ornamental hedges and flower beds I myself had created only the previous year, and which were pleasing to my father, who enjoyed beauty, but always swore he had no cleverness for making it. My father welcomed the interview. I suppose he believed he was to learn what I was been doing on my trips abroad. At the agreed time, he seated himself in his usual chair, patiently lighting his old churchwarden, looking out into the late summer garden. It was a Monday afternoon in the year of 1797, the second year of the directory, following that in which Bonaparte became general of the army in Italy and won victories at Lodi and Arcola. We discussed the news from France, as we often did, and he expressed some pleasure in his sense of things settling down again. I seized, as we say, the deer by the antlers. Hesitantly at first I explained why I felt I was unsuitable for the responsibilities of the next Graf von Beck, and that I believed my younger brother, Rickart, was a better choice. Moreover, he would be sure to provide Beck with an heir. My father frowned at this last and inquired delicately if there were any difficulties in that area, perhaps a wound, he suggested, but I assured him that my life had been dissolute enough in France and America. My tendency at present was towards celibacy. I reassured him hurriedly that I was not ready to become a Jesuit. I believed thoroughly, I told him, in the old family tale concerning God's commission to Lucifer. Therefore, I did not see much to be gained from the directly religious life. However, my tendency, I said, was to join some lay group dedicated to good works, some arm, I had thought, of the Moravians. 
After some discussion, he gave me his blessing, and there was a tear or two in his eyes, which he wished me to ignore. This running of land, he said a few moments later, as we walked together in the garden, is a difficult business. It imposes duties upon one, and sometimes pointless disciplines. It imposes a role, too. I do not believe I am much cut out to be a patriarch, my Enfred, yet here I am, a good old typical Saxon Vatersteater, indistinguishable, no doubt, from a hundred others. It is my choice, and I don't much regret it, but I must let you know, my son, that I have sympathy with your decision, and Rickard, doubtless, will only be too happy to step into my shoes, since he never had any hopes of that. We walked out of the garden and across the meadows, towards the old ruined abbey, which had stood there since the 8th century. There was little left of it, and most of that was covered with vines. It lay amongst trees on the other side of a rustic bridge. My father paused on the bridge, looking down into the slow, weed-strewn stream and the minnows darting just beneath the surface. What constitutes a man's duties, and what are a woman's, is ordained by God. Yet, if tis true God abandon us, and our family motto says that so, then why should we not refuse his reasoning as he refuses us the comfort of certainty? As good parents will, he somehow found the crux of my problem without for a second guessing the superficial truth. Well, I am not sure I know, father. It's money, it seems, he said with a smile. All a question of inheritance and power, of course, since that comes with it, with land. He looked about his fields. You are certain you wish to give up this easy, comfortable power, my boy? Fervently, I said with a smile, which set him to chuckling. We continued on across the bridge and into the shade of the old abbey. Midges clustered there, and my father blew smoke from his pipe to drive them away. We enter an age which values all this far more than I ever did, he said, and at the same time conspires to destroy it. Was the world always full of so many paradoxes, Manfred? Well, I think so, I told him. Always. Yeah, I believe you're right, my boy. St. Odrin was due to visit us. He had written to say that not only had he failed to understand Miroslav's design, he had spent half his fortune on a scheme to manufacture the gas called Vodorodium, which met with complete lack of success in that direction. He had, however, met an original Englishwoman, who showed intelligent and original interest in scientific inquiry, and he wished me to meet her. Her name was Lady Susan Vernon. In his letter, he could not resist adding that he had certainly gone up a notch or two in society since his early beginnings, running close to the gallows in the Scottish slums. I looked forward to their visit and arranged with my father that I would leave with them when they returned to Murrenburg. Lady Susan Vernon was everything St. Audrin described, and moreover, she was a great beauty, with curly black hair and brilliant blue eyes. A wonderful match. We became excellent friends almost at once. St. Audrin said he was tiring of Murrenburg, that all countries were backward now, even the new France compared to England. It's a land of engineers, old friend, said he, when in stripes and flounces and tilted beaver he brought the latest mode to Beck. It may lack even a moderately good cuisine, or comfort, or decent weather. It is a land, in the main, of drunken brutes and condescending Philistines, 
of hypocrites and complacent know-nothings. But it has the raw materials of my trade. Moreover, of course, it is Susan's home. Her family has met me. Her father's something of an amateur experimenter. She's a genius. I'm thought a suitable groom. And you, you must be my best man. Doing my best to disguise any sudden sadness at his words, I accepted with what I hoped was good grace. Then I made a joke. And what are those raw materials? I always thought them a pack of playing cards and a brace of barkers. I would never let him forget our less respectable past. It always amused him. He was proud of it, and had kept no secrets from his fiancée. "'Odds blood, me dear,' said he in that new limp manner of the English dandy. "'But you'd damn near have a sense of humour if you wasn't a German.' He continued in great enthusiasm about the experiments with steam, new metals and the machines which would soon make England one vast manufactory. After Muirenberg, where he was arranging his affairs and transferring his funds, he would go first to Glasgow, and then join Susan Vernon in London. He meant to do great things, he told me, but would have to begin in the north. And, he told me privately, if anyone recognised him for a Newgate absentee, it would not present much of a problem for him now. Lud, it had cost me a hundred guineas, for the prince himself would have to be sweetened. I told him of my decision and what had happened to me. He thought the matter over and then nodded and embraced me. She still inhabits you then? Aye, tis part of it. We stood upon Beck's remaining battlements, all that was left of the old dark schloss, and looked out over lovely autumn fields where placid cattle cropped among the fallen, overgrown trees. Beside the winding stream, there were oaks and lichen-covered elms, meadows of wild flowers. In the distance was the smoke of our village's hearths, for we were feeling the first hint of winter. It was almost sunset. He put a long arm about my shoulders. Courage is never constant, dear friend. It comes and goes according to circumstances, like water in a well, and tis as hard to keep steady as mercury. The morrow brought a very sober morning, the sun making only the very few efforts to appear, yet I augured from it everything most favourable to my wishes. We were upon our way. St. Audrin, Lady Susan and I boarded the diligence for Muirenberg, and all my bags were packed up on it. My mother kissed me farewell, while my father hugged me with sudden strength. I told him that I could be reached in care of Sergeant Schuster at the martyred priest. St. Audrin lifted his hat to all and amiably say, Good day, in English, to the delight of my youngest sister's children, who thought him fine amusement. And then we were off on the Prague Express, squawking tantivies and rattling harness, as the six-horse team galloped against the clock to ensure its record. After some time in Muirenberg, where I found my memories and dreams mingling too painfully for my taste, I accepted St. Audrin's request of return with him to Glasgow. In that pretty city, he found himself part of a new elite. They were called by the press in England, Kettleheads, and had a common interest in the uses of the improved steam engines, some of which were already driving carriages at over five miles per hour. In St. Audrin's shadow I became fairly famous in my own right, since I shared his enthusiasms and saw all that machinery as a means of ultimately liberating mankind from bestial toil. He planned to launch a new steam-powered airship. 
In the meantime, he invested in engines for the driving of ships and weaving mills, and that type of machine proved so popular he could scarcely find sufficient follies on which to squander his profits. I too benefited from the enterprises and began to consider the possibility of founding a model village, a tiny universe as it were, where at least a few of those new labouring men and women could find equality and tranquillity. St. Audrin entertained hopes for a steam carriage roadway which would carry several vehicles at a time, perhaps utilising the canal towpaths. St. Audrin, in Lady Susan's laughing presence, confided that it was difficult for him to believe, after so many years a swindler, that people possessed dreams which actually, by dint of experiment and careful investigation of nature, could be made reality. He continued to speak as someone who had hit upon a perfect fraud for which the law would not reach him. I've decided that I have not changed by a hair, and neither have those people's dreams changed. What has changed, I would guess, is reality itself. They both laughed at this, and I joined in. But I wondered if perhaps Labussa had achieved something after all. Occasionally I wonder if both of us had been allowed to go only so far to accomplish the devil's work. We had nothing but Lucifer's word, he did not control us. Yet it is also true that my failure of courage and her failure to banish the beast would inevitably have conspired to ruin any large success for her alchemical schemes. Yet perhaps we both viewed matters too simply. Alchemy, in a few brief years, had become the material for low comedy. It is no longer feared for its occult powers as it was in my day. The engineers, like St. Audrin, are suddenly ascendant when not long since the public had decided that those same men were the buffoons and crackpots. So there too it is possible to say Labussa failed. She threw her entire fate upon a single card. Her stake was not merely her own, she risked the fortunes and lives of dozens, and she lost. The day of the lion failed to dawn. Today is the day of the steam engine. Perhaps she was after all a martyr, a martyr to changing times, but her death might also have been valuable in bringing those times about. I am still in London, though I have paid visits to Beck and to Muirenberg, where, by a mysterious passage, I exchanged. Where, by a mysterious personage, I exchanged letters with and send books to a certain Philarchus Grossus, whose little singular volume I still possess. I stay always at the martyred priest. Old Schuster still maintains a share in the hostelry run by his daughter. We talk for hours, the same stories in the main, about our days as revolutionaries in America, the fate of France, the fortunes of young Krasny, who writes to Ulrika, after his considerable achievements with Bolivar in South America. Less frequently I delay my journey in Prague when I am on my way to Beck. I go in my carriage to a certain house near the Chateau Le Blanc, where a couple of old men meet to discuss the days of their former power, and plan for a time when they will again startle the world. We discuss the old wisdoms, the arcane law of alchemy, the chemical marriage, the great conjunction, and so forth. I am honoured by them as their high magister and enjoy considerable respect. If they are disappointed in me, it is only because I refuse to support them in their dreams of a revival of what they term the golden work. There are some amongst them who would flatter me. They say I have scarcely changed at all. I am still the same Duke of Crete, 
last possessor of pure Tauran blood, older than the human race itself, the same they knew a quarter century since. And if I smile and make light of all of that, it is not to mock them. These days it is wise to keep perspective. Unless we do so, can we ever hope to see true harmony, a cure for the world's pain? That secret lies in the grail, they tell me, and the grail is locked up in hell. Lucifer has charge of it. Thus they explain their failures, the decline of their power. On that subject, I would not display my scepticism. We all continue to grow rich in England on the profits of our former idealism. I have described to St. Audrin my feelings of ambiguity on the matter, but he tells me that I have no need to agonise over the morality of it. The new age will come, he tells me, but it will be a messy and sometimes painful birth, too complex for any single being to understand. The danger will lie in attempting to simplify it, he says. On the, <clears throat> on the insistence of Lady Susan, I began in the summer of 1817 to set down this account of my story. She insisted that my experience should not go unrecorded. Thus I compiled, and the manuscript. Thus I complied, and the manuscript, as agreed, shall be put into her safekeeping to do with as she pleases after my death, she being a few years younger than myself and in better health. Should she die, the manuscript is willed to her nearest female relative. Of my further adventures and discoveries, I have said nothing. They belong, I believe, to another account, which, if I am able, I shall also retail. It is my intention soon to return to Muranburg, where I have brought a small house in Rosenstrasse. I believe I would rather live with what remains of my pain and place, which we once shared. I look forward to taking an open carriage and driving beside the Riet during the month of October, when Marenburg grows mild and sleepy. My coachman shall take me out just before dawn when the stars are still visible. Later I shall ask him to stop upon the Rodotta Bridge. The air is always clear there, bearing the smell of wood smoke, autumn leaves and late summer flowers. The few barges move slowly through the mist of the Riet, early risen boatmen calling mutual greetings from a distance. Then there's the sun, a golden Mirrenberg dawn flooding into the pale blue of the sky, washing across the river, illuminating glittering domes and silver spires on either side, and the doves which nest nearby flutter up through the morning, a cloud of white enlivened by the light. When Mirrenberg begins to come fully awake, opening cafes and shops, trundling produce through her streets, setting off to school. I shall begin the drive back to Rosenstrasse. Marienburg is an extraordinary city, more peaceful and beautiful than most. They are no different. They conduct their lives and business pretty much as others do. It is a warm, old city with a traditional tolerance of strangers. She is within me always, my Lubosa. If her alchemy failed radically to change the world, it achieved permanent transformations elsewhere, through those she influenced. But I prefer to remember the earlier times when it seemed our love must result in a more conventional marriage. I like to imagine she rides with me in the carriage, enjoying those simpler pleasures I now relish.
We shall be happy, shall we not, Lebusa, in our decaying autumn days? Thus ender.